You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Adriana Trigiani. Adriana lives in Greenwich Village, and she joins us from her home on the phone today to talk about her new novel, All the Stars in the Heavens, publishing October 13th. Adriana is beloved by millions of readers around the world for her 15 bestsellers, including The Shoemaker's Wife, The Big Stone Gap series, Lucia Lucia, The Valentine series, The Viola series for young adults, and the best-selling memoir, Don't Sing at the Table. She's also the award-winning filmmaker of the documentary Queens of the Big Time, and she wrote and directed the major motion picture Big Stone Gap based on her debut novel, and the film releases this fall. Welcome, Adriana, and let's talk about all the stars in the heavens. You've said that you hope that your books entertain and enchant the readers, and I can say Mm -hmm. that's precisely what you accomplished with this book. So please tell us a little bit about the premise of the of the story. Well, you know, over the course of time, entertaining chant really is my mission. I know that my readers work hard and need a little respite from the hard work that they do, raising children, uh, their jobs, you know, the pressures of life. And so I set out really to tell a page-turning story. I want you to have the same feeling that you get when you can take an afternoon off and watch an old movie. That's that's the kind of feeling I want you to have when you read my books. Now, beyond that, there's also, you know, the mission of these two tracks that my themes run on, which is how do we survive by the labor of our own hands, work, our work, and who do we love? Because I think that's fascinating. And it's a lifelong fascination of why does this person end up with that person and why do some of us make a lifelong commitment and it sticks and why do some of us struggle with it and and how does this work out? So I'm interested in those two things. And then as you go on as an artist, you want to grow. And as my career propelled towards The Shoemaker's Wife, which was the story, the true story, story of my grandparents with fictional elements where I suffused it as some of the great writers have done like E.L. Doctorow with fictional characters and real characters right side by side I wanted to like take a stab at that and then I went back to a story that sort of haunted me since I was a young woman and that's how I came upon all the stars in the heavens and the story begins with a knock on my door when I was a student at St. Mary's in the 1980s. And there was a nun in full habit at my door. I had written a poem about Clark Gable. Now you might say, nowadays people might know who Clark Gable is because of the, the old movie channel. But in the 80s, nobody knew who he was because he had kind of fallen out of fashion because there was there weren't reruns on TV of him. Yeah. But in the 70s, when I was a girl, there were because I had a great aunt who was obsessed with old movies, my great aunt Mary, who I dedicated the book to. And um, she sort of taught me about him. 
And I had a mad crush on him. And, of course, Gone with the Wind had a big revival in the late 70s. It had, like, an anniversary. It was reissued, and it was in theater, so I went to see it. And so I was crazy about Clark Gable. And so I wrote a poem about him, and this nun knew Mrs. Gable, Clark Gable's fifth wife, with whom he had a child. So she came and knocked on my door, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm old, and I want you to have this. And she gave me a photograph that Mrs. Gable had sent her. And she said, I called her, and I sent her the poem you wrote. Oh, my goodness. Okay. She said, I want you to promise me that you'll go meet her someday. Um, because she couldn't believe that someone so young remembered her husband. And she, she was tickled with the poem. Yeah. So Mrs. Gable died in 1983, and I never met her. So this haunted me, and I sort of just kept this picture with me. I still have it. I'm looking at, looking at it right now. I'll bet. It's like I'm yeah. looking at it. So that's what launched the story of the book, is of, of Clark Gable, the, one of the characters in this book. And then from there, I, I read, you know, everything I could get my hands on about him. And then that led me to Loretta Young. Yeah. So tell us how those two stories, those two people intersect a little bit. Well, they intersect because they made a movie together in uh, January of 1935 called The Call of the Wild, which was directed by a man named William Wellman. And they went on location, which wasn't done then so much. Right. But Wellman wanted to make a real adventure picture. So they really went where there were blizzards and snow to Bellingham, Washington, on a place called Mount Baker. And Clark Gable was married to a woman 17 years his senior named Maria Langham Gable. And Loretta Young had had uh, a romance with Spencer Tracy. But it was a chaste romance from, from everything I could discern from what I read. And he was separated from his wife at the time. And... Loretta, from what I read, there's an autobiography, and then there's a lot of accounts from that you read from all the other stars. And this took a lot of research. Yeah, it sounds I like read a, a lot, a lot of books. How long was your research period? Oh, 20 years, <laughs> because I read everything I could get my hands on. But there was one sentence that shaped really my take on the whole thing. And I, I mean, I went into it kind of with a bunch of opinions that were all dispelled by the time I sat down to write the book and shape it. And it came through the daughter that was the result of the love affair that happened on Mount Baker between Clark Gable and Loretta Young, who was kept secret. Mm-hmm. Her daughter, Judy. She wrote a book in 1994, a very, um, I would say, intense and a very detailed book about everything she found out about her lineage, which was corroborated in other books. One phrase that haunted me was that Judy said was that her mother's greatest regret was that she didn't get Clark able to marry her. Yeah. For those that have not, that are listening to this and have not yet read the book, to sort of give a demonstration of of the detail, I want to read this passage that may surprise you, but and it is it's just a, it's two sentences from a scene that's set in um, Louis B. Mayer's uh, office, and it's describing the desk of Mayer's secretary, Ida. And you say this. You say, Her large walnut desk was polished to a glossy sheen. Her typewriter, a black-and-white underwood, was positioned on a specially built arm 
that could swing the typewriter out of the way so Ida might use the broad surface of her desktop to lay out pages of scripts or publicity shots or to line up the drawers pulled from her card catalog of artisans, producers, and actors and writers her boss wanted her to contact. There was something about when I read that, that I was pulled into this, you know, movie studio mogul's mm. office and, and just sort of all of the attention to detail and, and everything that happened, you know, in that room that was sort of, it was sort of indicative of the entire book. But I, I, I think that it was, it, you really were successful in transporting us. Well, I've been waiting 20 years to write about Ida Coverman. Ida Coverman today would be a studio executive. Yep. She would be a producer on a film. She would be one of the great producers because she is the person that married the talent to the money. Yep. And put the put the script in the hand of the stars and said, "Okay, it's going to be Gable, Harlow, and Spencer Tracy, mm -hmm. and this is how this is going to go down." And and she was she was fascinating, but she she died single and a secretary. Yep. Okay, she didn't take any credit. And Louis B. Mayer, when she was dying, was at her deathbed. Yeah. He knew, and everybody in the know knew, okay? So when we talk about, you know, women writing, directing, and all of that, you see in that one scene, very potent scene, how it was done. You don't know how thrilled I am that you found that desk interesting. And I'll tell you what, I labored over describing that desk and that, and that typewriter, Please tell us a little bit about your your life prior to when you started writing novels and all the work that you've done uh, in TV and films. Mm -hmm. Well, I came to New York to be a playwright. That was my dream, to make a living as a playwright. I soon found out that what I could do was get a lot of staged readings. And you had to have certain luck go your way with that. And I was in my 20s. And I was very young, but I could see right away how this was going to go, and I couldn't make a living. And I was getting, I had done 20-some stage readings, and I was still in my 20s. And I went, wow. I can't get a production. And then when I got productions, it, I couldn't make a living. Yeah. So I was working jobs, but I was, I was developing as a writer, and I was working with Ruth Getz. Yep. And Ruth Getz was my mentor, and she wrote with her husband, the heiress, they adapted the heiress from Washington Square, okay? So she was brilliant, and she was the technician, she told me, and her husband wrote the emotions. And she called it what? She and, called it your gardening lessons, right? Coming yeah, back she to called the them gardening man. lessons. That's yeah. what she called them. Come every Saturday. And let me tell you what, she was tough, and she would scream and yell and, oh, my gosh, and just take my stuff apart. But I remember this day like it was yesterday. She told me... She read all my plays, and she said to me, Adriana, I'm going to now tell you who you are. And I was like, oh, no. And she said, you are the voice of the American worker. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? Because I had moved to New York like every other person. You know, I thought Edith Wharton, glamour. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. I thought upscale. And I went out, and she, you know, she was done with the lesson that day, and I was like, went in the hallway, and I went, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, I'm struggling for this, and because I was young and I was an idiot, right? But she was right. That's what I, I, that's what I truly cared about, and that's what I 
writing about. And she was 100% correct. And that's what, from that day forward, I focused. That's what I focused on. That's what was in my work to start with, and that's what I then cultivated. Ruth was always yelling at me to stay in the theater. And I said, Ruth, I can't make a living. So I got into television. I was still writing my plays. I was like, a, I was still trying to hold out for the theater. And I understand you're under commission from the Cherry Lane Theater to write a play. And then it, uh, and yes. you're also writing a musical with Amanda Green. Is that right? Yes, yes. Based on Rococo, my so, novel Rococo. You're as famous for your relationship with your readers as you are for your work. You, you really just go above and beyond to, to be sure that they know how much you appreciate them. Tell us why that's so important to you. Well, I didn't get into this really um, for any reason but the reader. Before I had my family, my mother said to me, you know, my mother's mother of seven kids, and my mother said to me, do everything you want in your life, put your family first. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, okay, I got that, right? Well, you put your family first, but that leaves a lot of your life to do a lot. You can do a lot. I said, now what's important here? Okay, here's what's important, to entertain and enchant my reader. So that became very clear. I'm serving her. I'm in a service job. That's my career. Books, the movie, serves my reader. Uh, My tour company serves my reader. Of course, Gina Casella runs that. And you can walk in the steps of the characters. Release, fun, uh, great times, going to Italy, beauty on a budget for my ladies who, you know, are teachers and nurses and, and have so much time and limited resources, and this is what they can do. We try to accommodate that. Um, walking tours of Greenwich Village, that's what our goal is. Um, the idea that uh, I'm providing uh, not only escapism but a mirror, fun, that, I'm, that the themes of my books are things that we like to talk about, that, that we, need, we need to lock arms as sisters and shore, up, shore each other up and provide each other with sustenance, um, emotional and otherwise. So you see... My job is just then very crystal clear. So when I get up every day, I know exactly what my job is. I have to write the best books I can possibly write and then what serve the needs of my uh, readers. And that's it. It, yeah. it really makes for a very clear-cut goal here. I, uh, the, the rest of it uh, is not of any interest to me. So tell us a little bit about your writing routine and how you – juggle the various types of writing that you're doing? Being a novelist really doesn't help you be a screenwriter. Uh, yeah, although writing, writing, they're all different kinds of disciplines. Novels are just delicious. I'm alone in a room, reading aloud, acting out these scenes. I can go anywhere in the world. It's just the characters in me. I'm with them. It's this wonderful solitude. When you read All the Stars in the Heavens, you know, there's a lot of snow in this book. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is when I was editing it, you know, it took me two and a half years to write it. But we had a really long winter. 
Yep, that was when a I was winter. finishing the book, and, and so in editing it, I just kept adding snow scenes because I just and and my husband would say, "Oh, nobody can go outside because it's another blizzard." And I'd go, "Yay!" And everybody just looked at me like, <laughs> "We can, we want to go outside." And I'm like, "No, I don't. I just want to go up in that little laundry room and watch that white snow come down and sit there with Clark Gable and Loretta Young." And so all those scenes of when they of when they make the igloo and when they're oh, yep. all that stuff was a yeah, result of the blizzard. The, yeah, they you what know. do they they use the snow finally when they they the roads are closed and so they can't get additional food and they use the cook uses the snow to make what's the final thing that they make? Well, the this sweet is something this they, I got this is a recipe I got from my grandmother. Which yeah, what is, is you it? Take, you take clean snow and fresh cream and sugar. Oh, that's it. Yep. And you make kind of an ice cream, but you make hot yeah. waffles. Right. Because they have flour and eggs and they, have and they made waffles. Yep. But you made like almost a cone out of them. You make them square and then you kind of made folded them. And when Loretta and Clark had to go get the, the clean snow. And they snow, had to go get the that snow. Was yeah. Something that, happened. Oh, my God. That love scene is so beautiful. It's good. It's sexy. It's not a love scene because they're not, they're not going out at all. They're, he's, he's pursuing her and she's pushing them away. But there's a, they make that snow cream. I love that uh, Luca Chatta has Frangelico. He has liqueur. And right. he oh, drizzles right. it. And then, so you have waffles, the snow cream, and liqueur. Well, those <laughs> people were eating really good up there on Mount Baker. <laughs> they were having a good, that was a good dessert up there. Uh, and they had now, nothing to eat. Adriana, tell us, uh, what was the last book you had a conversation about, and what did you say? You mean just in life? Yeah, just in life. We're, I'm always curious about what, what folks are reading and talking about to their friends. Well, we're talking about the Elena Ferrante books. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's talking about those because it's uh, written by an Italian about two friends who are Southern Italians. Uh, deeply fascinating. Um, another one is um, my family traveled to Italy this summer. We picked up books uh, about Franco Zeffirelli's creations of costumes and, and yeah. some of his operas. So uh, very much into, you know, just being inspired by uh, Franco Zeffirelli's artwork and his views of the world. And he's still living in Rome and I think he's old and he's ailing now, which is very sad, but we, we got a, we got a bird's eye view into his stuff. So that was really wonderful. What are your reading habits when you're in the, mi- when you're in the middle of something and then when you're editing, d- d- does it change in terms of how, well, what you're so reading funny. and how you're. I'm just reading another book about the plane that went down with Carol Lombard in it. See, so I'm kind oh, of right. haven't let go of this. I just <laughs> read about another book when I was reading a book and I went, Oh, I got to get that book. So now I'm reading that one. Um, it's hard for me to let go. Yeah, so you read you read while you're writing. Some folks stop, but you I don't. St- I, well, I stop about the subject matter, what I was writing about, and then I read about something completely different. Yeah. But, but now I'm reading the Elena Ferrante books. Okay. Now, were you to be banished to a desert island and you, you were forced to only take three three books. Oh. Do you know what you would take? What would you take? Um, well, probably anthologies because they're big. Yep. I'd probably take the Bible. Yeah. Because there's never been a sentence 
that ever got me, like the sentence, in the beginning was the word. I mean, that sentence makes me cry. And believe me, the people that love me the most in this world would never describe me as religious. I'm deeply, deeply faithful and spiritual. They would never say, we could quote the Bible, but that sentence gets me every time. So I would say the Bible would be one of them. Um, probably Walden by Thoreau, because I probably have to build a place to live. And also because I constantly quote that book. I live by, um, if one advances confidently in the direction of her dreams and endeavors to live the life which she has imagined for herself, she will meet with success unexpected in common hours. I changed it for a woman. One of my favorite quotes. Yep. That is kind of the story of your life. It kind of is. It's like if you just keep working hard, you come to in the ordinary hours. It's true. And the other one, of course, is my favorite. When I have to stand on a long line, this is what I say. I quote Thoreau, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, Then, you know, the third one, there's a million, okay? It might be Bring on the Empty Horses by David Niven. It might be anything by John Lahr. And I know that's going to sound crazy, but he writes about show business in a way. Yep. And I, maybe I wouldn't be that interested in show business if I was on a de desert island. But John Lars, his compilations of his of personalities in show business are fascinating to me. Like his current one on Tennessee Williams. Talk about a great book. Yeah. Everybody should read it. Um and I have books like The Passionate Playgoer by George Oppenheimer, which, by the way, really helped me when I go to write All the Stars in the Heavens because it defines periods of time when I wasn't alive that helped me write about them. Oh, yeah. Um, old screenplays, you know, like 20 together. hot film plays, yeah. you know, that, that, that yeah. you know, John Gassner put out. I mean, stuff like that. Well, this has been so much fun. I thank you so very much for taking the time. I know how busy you are. And thank you very much for this book. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.